And after you've marked song number 179, may I invite you to turn to the book of Jude. We're going to be using at least a portion of that little one-chapter book for a section of our lesson today. It'll particularly be the one that Brother Greg just read from verses 20 and 21. But as we give thought to the love of God, I hope you're impressed with the thought that you and I will only touch a bit of the surface of a subject such as that one because one could speak probably for the rest of one's life and never fully give thought to the majesty, the fullness and sufficiency of the love of God. It's good for my family and I to be back with you today. We've certainly enjoyed your prayers and thankful for them in our particular works over the last couple of Sundays. And as we're back today with our church family here, it's our blessing and delight to be able to worship along with you a discussion about the love of God. This next slide is an introduction, and in it I would like to invite you to think about song number 646. I know that's a song. We sing sometimes, but the words are quite touching. I'd like to read, and as you listen, we're then going to give a subject of consideration. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. And then verse 2, When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hill and mountains call. God's love so sure shall still endure all measure less and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. And now verse number 3. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. The author of that song has attempted to stretch our mind to give some thought to the extensiveness the grand extensiveness of the love of God. In that last verse, an amazing poetic stroke, if you could fill the whole ocean with ink, and if the sky was where you're going to write the message, and every single stalk on earth were a quill, you still couldn't write the fullness of the love of God. Needless to say, you and I will not in a few moments be able to plumb the depths of a subject such as that one, but I do think the Word of God at least allows us to reflect on some mighty lessons and truths connected to it. And that's what we'll attempt to do over the next few moments this morning. This next slide begins by taking us to 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. I asked you to turn to Jude a moment ago, and 1 John is only a few pages back in your Bible. And when you arrive at that location, you'll find that rather famous refrain where the Apostle John had much to say about the nature of the fact that God is love. I'd like to read that one for your consideration. Beloved, let us love one another, 
for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I hope each of us feel a bit impressed by the text that it does not say that God knows about love. It doesn't say He has some affiliation with it. It doesn't say He teaches about it. It says He is love. It's what He is. When you think about love, God is the embodiment. When you give thought to what love really is, it is God. I realize you and I upon this earth know somewhat about love. We love our wife. We love our children. We love other members of the family. And isn't it true? Even Jesus said, love your enemies in Matthew 5, verses 45 and 46. And yet, when you and I give thought to the very nature of love, it's God. God is love. On that slide, I've invited you to think somewhat about then this consideration. When you and I exhibit love, in its pureness, in its beauty and directness, we are exhibiting the very nature and character of what God is. Oh, it's certainly true. Human love can be a bit on the imperfect side. Didn't Jesus challenge those of His day with that message? Matthew 5, verses 46 and 47. He pointed out to them, you love those who can do something for you, but you don't seem to have much love for those that can't benefit you. And that's still a tendency, I suppose, in the human family, isn't it? I'll love you when you can love me back and do something that'll advantage me. But quite often, one doesn't see much about love directed to those who can make no return. Those who have no capacity or otherwise cap the means whereby they can offer a return. Surely it is in that connection, the next point on that slide, reminds us that God's love is ideal. You and I, for example, could do nothing that would offer to Him a greater fullness of His existence. He loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we were ungodly. He loved us when we were unworthy and fully extended His love to us in that way. Isn't that still a remarkable truth? You'll notice in 1 John 4 verse 19, Again, John pointed out this truth when he wrote, God exhibited that love, His love, to us in a way far greater than what we would be able to advantage directly Him. Isn't it also true that human love can be somewhat empty? I say that because of the language of 1 John 3.18. Now, it ought never to be that way, but it could be, couldn't it? Didn't John write to those brethren, make sure that your love is not merely tongue. Make sure it's deed. Make sure it's filled and fraught with demonstration, manifestation, and action. You see, love, that's just empty. It's only in word. It's not a love like God's love at all. As you close that slide with me, maybe it's fair to give a definition. So when we use this word love, what do we mean? What could be meant by it? I know that we've mentioned it more than once, but isn't it still fair to say we use the word love with such a broad stroke? One person might say, I love chocolate ice cream. And I have every doubt that you do. You enjoy it greatly. 
And another might say, I love my 1966 Corvette. And I'm sure you do. But I hope that we're not using a word like that the same way when I say, I love my wife. I would hope that I would think more of her than I would chocolate ice cream or a car or, yay, something else that I might own as a possession. I would hope that our love for our spouse, for didn't Jesus say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25 For you see, you and I, though we may use that word love in a way, with a broad stroke that way, I think as we use God's love as an example, His love as a demonstration, it leads to this definition. That word love in association with God means the selfless devotion resulting from conscious decision and evaluation with the sole and singular goal being the good of the object. God loves you and me, meaning He wants what's best for us, regardless what other circumstances or other truths or other opinions might be stated. When you and I exhibit love in a way like that, that's the way that we should desire men to love our wives. That would be the way that we would desire, you see, our consideration relative to loving the Lord. Are we not taught in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And then he quickly said, love your neighbor as yourself. In the very next verse, Jesus said that that element was the greatest of the commandments. What about the greatness of that commandment highlighted like this? I think it's amazing to consider some dimensions that the Word of God chooses to use in an effort to help us appreciate somewhat of the magnitude and enormity of the love of God. I might start in Ephesians 3, verses 17 and following, where you and I recall that the love of Christ is under discussion. Now, this is not love that you and I have for Christ. It is Christ's love that He had. And what does it say about it? It says that love is such that the breadth, the length, the height, the depth are such that those enormous dimensions do not fully comprehend the great measure of it. Now that's amazing when you and I think about dimensions. You and I live in a three-dimensional world, and yet four attributes are mentioned there. That's rather fascinating. That text in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, some would argue that one of the grandest of the chapters of the New Testament, in which it begins by asserting to each of us, there's no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And as that begins the chapter, notice how it ends. It's a beautiful set of bookends. The chapter begins by highlighting no condemnation to those who in fact serve the Lord by walking after the Spirit. And the chapter ends, beginning in verse 35, like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you notice the extensiveness of that list? Nothing. No forces, no influence by their own measure and by their own power and strength are sufficient to separate oh, you and me from the love of God manifested through Christ. You and I know a lot of powerful things on this earth. Tanks, bombs, the various assertions of kingdoms that are arrayed against the God of heaven, and yet none of it, none of it, can separate a body from the God of heaven with the love manifested in Christ. The only being that can separate me from God is me. I can choose to ignore that love. I can choose to be disobedient to it. I can choose to turn my back on it. But nobody can force me to. Nobody. Isn't it interesting to reflect upon that as you and I transition to the next slide? For what about Christ? We've already seen the Lord mentioned there in Romans 8, 39. The love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what about the Christ? You and I knew that that was to be a part of this discussion, surely. What is the singular, most evident way that God's love was demonstrated, shown in clear-cut, unmistakable ways? Well, you knew that it was the cross. Let's start, though, with the golden text of John 3, verse 16. It is rather well known, and our word of discussion today appears, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved. I suppose, and you might recall James Watkins loved to make this point, and he did it so well. That word so is an adverb of two, two letters. But what depth is in it? The inspired writer not only included the fact that God loved, but He so loved. A love so deep. A love so matchless. A love so thorough. God so loved the world. Might you and I appreciate that when it says He loved the world, it didn't mean mountains and rivers and rocks. You and I, the human creatures, the human inhabitants of this world, those are the ones that were loved by God to the point where He sent the Son. He sent His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In the spring of A.D. 30, we don't know anything about the weather of that day other than the fact it was dark from noon until 3 p.m., we don't know if it was pretty and sunny otherwise. We don't know if it had rained the previous day. We just don't know. But what we do know is that was a monumental day when God showed His love for one and all to be seen. He loved us, and this is the proof. His Son, He Himself, God in the flesh, went to the cross. As you and I develop somewhat of that on this slide, Maybe it takes it to that statement I ask you to notice. It says, God gave. Remember, you and I had nothing to give back to Him at that time. The human family was lost in sin. 
when Adam and Eve chose to make the commission of sin, which they did, there had been gallons of blood offered over the years from animals, bulls and goats, but that blood could never take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. That blood could never make the conscience clean. Hebrews 10 verse 1. That blood could never make one connected to God. Hebrews 9 14. That blood, you see, couldn't put one's name into a position whereby for you and me, heaven could be appreciated. But God sent His Son. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, to borrow the words of Romans 5 verse 6, for the ungodly. Isn't it still an amazing consideration? Jesus didn't just die for people who were nice and noble. He died for those people who were renegades, heathens, idolaters, sinners. And I know that includes you and me too. But in the light of that consideration, isn't it a reminder of the greatness of God's love, how pure and direct it is? The next point on that slide invites you to note this. God loves us all. He knows you and me by name. If it's true that all the stars are named by Him, and we're told that that's the case in the book of Job, isn't it a reminder that the very hairs of your head and mine are numbered, and He knows us, and He loves us, and He wants us to be with Him eternally? That's what He wants. He does leave the decision to you and me. If we, in return, will love Him, then we can follow in obedience and do enjoy that characteristic of that eternity with Him. As you'll note near the bottom of that slide, the Lord's love is such a dramatic way demonstrated voluntarily. Nobody made Him go to the cross. It wasn't the fact that as those Romans and others encouraged it, you'll notice He Himself declared that He could have called legions of angels to deliver Him from that moment. When Jesus made Himself that statement in Matthew 26, verse 53, in it a reminder of what He Himself said back in John 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life. No man taketh it from me. I lay down my life for the sheep. And He laid it down voluntarily. He went to the cross, making it possible to accomplish for you and me what we never could have accomplished for ourselves. And that manifestation, that demonstration of the love of God, surely allows us to ask questions of ourselves. So far, we've looked at somewhat of God's love and its specific manifestation in the life of the Christ. This next slide is one that asks us to put the two together. In one of the other statements that not only John made, but Jude as well. What about the role of commandments in this? Isn't it true that there are some who suppose that God's love is so bountiful and so extensive that it really matters not much what is done in life. He's going to love me at the day of judgment and with open arms take me right on into glory. They suppose that's the only way love can act. That that's the only thing of which love is capable. Biblically, you and I must appreciate that's not accurate. 
And let's use some verses from the Word of God to help us understand that connection. Would you turn back with me to 1 John 5, and we'll look at verse number 3. 1 John 5, verse number 3, will be a source of consideration for us. And in that place, we read the following. I'll start reading in verse number 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. John wrote, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Therefore, for you and me to say that we love God is one thing. For that to be a true statement it certainly must be manifested as we keep His commandments. That's what the text says. This is the love of God. What is the this, John, that we keep His commandments? And he quickly adds the thought, God's commandments are not grievous. They are not burdensome. They are not overwhelming and overbearing. You and I find joy, and we find a great deal of enjoyment connected to the keeping of them. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. A person who says that he or she loves God and yet does not keep the commands of God, that person is lying to you. They say one thing, they don't mean it. Their life is not a manifestation of what they claim. Their language says one thing, their actions say something else. It is not possible to love God without keeping His commandments. And God's commandments are not grievous. Some of the verses you notice, not only that one I've invited you to consider in 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3, I've also invited you to notice 1 John 2 verse 5. Turn back three chapters and look at another presentation that the inspired writer sets before us. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. How is the love of God perfected? That is to say, how is it that it draws to maturity? How is it that it manifests what God has in mind for it? The text says, in keeping the commands of God, in keeping his word. Could you and I then appreciate that God's love was shown to us rather directly and beautifully by what the Lord did at the cross? And now the question becomes, God showed His love. How do I show mine? And how do you show yours back to God? It's this simple. You keep His commandments. The conveniences and pleasures of life must be overwhelmed by our keeping of His commandments. Otherwise, preferences that should come before us, they are overwhelmed by what you and I do as we keep His commandments. You and I love God. We show that love as we do what He says. As you close that slide with me, isn't it another gentle reminder that that's the same kind of message Jesus shared? If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus made that statement the night before He died. The night before He was nailed to a cross. The night before He permitted others to crucify Him. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
for you and me to say, I love you, Lord, but then don't keep His commandments, we're deceiving ourselves. We may be naive, or we may just be flat out lying. But either way, it's not an accurate statement. It isn't true. Do you and I love the Lord? Then we'll keep His commandments. We will strive to learn more of them and seek to implement them in our life. We'll keep His commandments. You may have already noticed, and perhaps it's worthy of another emphasis, that John quickly adds, but His commandments aren't grievous. It's a good question to ask. How do you and I look upon the things that God says? Do we see them sometimes as being grievous? If so, that's an indication that our maturity in Christ is not what it ought to be yet. It's not as if we've reached the point wherein we can look upon what God has in store for those who are the faithful. Let's close our lesson in the book of Jude. I ask you to note that as the reading earlier And it is a little text in a one-chapter book of the New Testament. Though much might be said about the book of Jude, our focus here is only on these two verses. Verse number 20, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Let's pause long enough to notice. Certainly that doesn't sound odd or strange. Jude addresses these as brethren. And he says, Build up yourselves on your most holy faith. That is to say, you seek from a personal standpoint to edify, to build yourself. You and I know faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, and thus we seek to use God's Word in our lives individually to build ourselves up. And we pray in the Holy Ghost, but now this... Keep yourselves in the love of God. Notice that's not a command to God, obviously. He loves us. That's a command to us. How do you and I keep ourselves in the love of God? God always loves us. It's as though there is a sphere, a place, a location. Make sure you stay there, is what Jude wrote. Make sure you stay in the confines of that love. It's easy to put that together with the previous observation of our study today. That means I need to keep those commandments of the Lord to stay in that environment wherein there's faithfulness to the Lord's church, the recognition of salvation of my soul. Keep yourselves in the love of God, and then it ends like this. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I've invited you to note somewhat of the grammar of that passage. Keep is an aorist imperative. And in Greek, that just means there's a lot of emphasis in this. And then the word yourselves is a reflexive word. It identifies each of us individually. That means I have the decision here. Randy, keep yourself in the love of God. And you can put your name in that sentence. May each of us, with intensity, with devotion, with love, strive to appreciate the magnitude of God's love, what He did for you and me, and to every day make sure to stay in it, to keep in the love of God. The conclusion, which is on the next slide, just is a gentle reminder of the magnificence of God's love and the demonstration of it. 
how that at the cross we are able to see exactly how much God loved you and me. It's not that God made rocks and trees and rivers for us. That'd be one thing. But to give of Himself, who Himself was sinless, in such a heinous death as crucifixion, that's how much He loved me and you. That's how much He wants you and me to be saved. May you and I want it too. When we want that, it means we'll keep His commandments. And we'll do those things pleasing in His sight. If there's someone in this assembly today who's never become a Christian, may I remind you, God loves you. Though you right now are in a state of sin, if you've reached an age of accountability, He still loves you. And Jesus died that you might have the opportunity and the blessing of having your souls redeemed from sin. The plan of salvation. You need to believe with all of your heart that Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah. That He came. You need to repent of your sins. You're required that you confess the great name of the Lord as the Son of God, and that you are baptized for the remission of your sins. And what a moment of joy, what a moment of tremendous connection. The love of God is so powerfully appreciated in moments such as that. But may I say that God's love is even extended to those who once were Christians, but have also chosen to become un unfaithful. God still loves you too. So much so that He's pleading for you to return. Begging for you to come to your senses. In much the same way the prodigal son finally came to himself in Luke 15, 21 to 24. God wants you to do that too. We as a congregation here at Pippin would surround you with arms of encouragement and acceptance and love. Even as you appreciate God's love of forgiveness extended your way. If we could be of help by way of simply offering prayers for challenges maybe you're facing in life, we'd be very much happy to do that too. The love of God's a great subject. And that song, Song 646, is a song that reminds us just how great that love is. But if you need today to respond to that love by obeying His commands and continuing in that obedience, we'd love to be an encouragement and help to you. And we invite you to come while we stand and sing the chosen song.